Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Academia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And today we have a Species Spotlight episode coming at you. One Something that we haven't done in a long time, as I mentioned in our previous try of <laughs> recording this intro. I don't remember what our last Species Spotlight was, but this episode we are focusing on shrimp. And we invited Dan Lee, who is the Standards Coordinator and Program Integrity Advisor here at GSA, to come on the show and talk to us about shrimp. And if you think you know a lot about shrimp, think you'll be in for a surprise because you've probably learned something. We get pretty deep into a lot of the different facets of shrimp biology, production methods, and and a little bit of standards, uh, some industry and marketplace stuff. So there's a lot that goes into this conversation, and I think you're really going to enjoy it and you're going to learn something. But before we get into it, please remember to subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen. So every time a new episode comes out, it'll be automatically downloaded onto your device. And follow us on Twitter at AquademiaPod. If you want to contact the podcast for any reason, sponsorship, you want to be a guest, you have topic suggestions, whatever the reason, you can fill out our online form, which is located at globalseafood.org slash podcast. And the best way that you can show your support for the show is by leaving us a rating or review on whichever podcast platform you are listening on. That's right. And if you are going to be at the Seafood Expo North America or the Boston Seafood Show, whichever you prefer to call it, this coming weekend, uh, at the time that this is released. We will be at booth 481. Come and find us at the Global Seafood Alliance booth. All three of us are going to be there for a couple of days and uh, we'd love to chat with you and, and catch up with some of our listeners. So with that, please enjoy this conversation that we had with Dan and we will talk to you at the end. Welcome to the Aquademia podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. So we're sitting down today with Dan Lee, who is the GSA Standards Coordinator. How's it going, Dan? Thanks for joining us. Good, thank you. Sean. And this is uh, an episode that we've been wanting to do for a while. As yep. everyone knows, we do every once in a while, we do a species spotlight episode. We've done a few. We've done mussels and crawfish and tilapia. But one of the really big ones that we haven't tackled is shrimp. And we were trying to figure out who would be the best person to come on and talk about shrimp. And I said, well, Dan Lee literally wrote a textbook on crustacean farming. So maybe <laughs> he would be a good person to come on and talk about shrimp. So uh, we asked Dan and he graciously agreed to come talk to us. So we're really excited. But before we get into shrimp, Dan, can you give us a little background on kind of who you are and how you got, we we could probably have you back on and we probably should to do an entire career pathways episode, but uh, just give our listeners a little rundown of kind of who they're listening to today. So they know who you are. Oh yeah. So um, thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. I've um, been trained as a biologist, a marine biologist in the UK. And then I got straight out of my university into a job in prawn farming or shrimp farming. As we, over here in the UK, we call them prawns quite often, but uh, shrimp is the more usual international term as you've got it here. So anyway, got into shrimp farming and um, it was Ecuador. That was where the action was at that stage and they were looking for biologists. So I got straight out of the uh, academic world and into commercial production of shrimp. And in particular, working in shrimp hatcheries. And that line of work kept me going for, for several decades, working in Asia, working in Latin America, uh, Madagascar. And then uh, 
I actually latched on to the uh, Global Aquaculture Alliance when it was a young organization, and I got involved with the standards um, development work, and I became the standards coordinator for uh, Global Aquaculture Alliance, or, or as it's now known, Global Seafood Alliance. So I've, I've gone from academia to commercial to the uh, well, pretty much the third sector, I guess, with this nonprofit, which is, uh, as we all know, Global Seafood Alliance. So right. what, um, what do you do as the standards coordinator? So it's a role um, kind of um, working with all the different committees that have to um, cover the governance of these standards, the technical committees that uh, control the content, the oversight committee that checks on the, um, the membership of those committees and on the final content of the standard. I look at the different drafts. I assist the different committee chairs with uh, advancing those draft standards until they're a finished piece. I also assist with the the program integrity team when we have um, issues or crop up with the implementation of the standards in the in the real world. And I also work uh, with market development because um, we always have to listen to the, the marketplace and understand that these standards we're developing are delivering for the um for the marketplace and for the producers at the same time so it's it's quite a broad role um so in, in that regard i'm i'm covering a lot of different standards um but as you've heard my background is primarily in uh crustacean farming and shrimp in particular right and the reason that i brought up dan first for this is my my first memory of meeting dan lee i don't know if you remember this dan i'm sure you do about seven and a half years ago when i was like just starting out Dan came to visit the office and he was going, doing the rounds, like visiting everyone's cube and meeting everyone new. And he came by and he was talking to me and, and he just goes, oh, hey, I see you have my book there. And I had a couple of my <laughs> textbooks from from my time at URI on my shelf. And I looked up and my crustacean farming book was there and it, and it was Dan's book. And I actually had Dan <laughs> autograph my textbook, which is probably the nerdiest thing that anyone could do. But I, I saw an opportunity and I had to take it. So that was my first encounter with Dan. So like I said, knowing that he wrote the book on crustacean farming, let's talk about shrimp. So Dan, let's start with, what should we start with? Maybe we should start with the basics on shrimp. Tell us about shrimp, what they are, where they sit within the food chain, how they're, you know, what are the basic uh, biological processes that they undergo throughout their their lives? And then we can get into the production methods from there. Yeah, well, um, shrimp are crustaceans. So they're in, their, in the same grouping with crabs and lobsters and crayfish and prawns. And um, they're also arthropods. So they're, they're, they've got an exoskeleton, they've got jointed limbs, segmented bodies. So they, they have similarities with insects and uh, spiders and and other terrestrial creatures as well but um it's the shrimp is uh it's always been a a food item especially in in parts of asia and um it's actually you know very good to eat and that's what sort of spurred this whole industry into into being just the the, the desire to get on and, and eat these um these crustaceans so I've, shrimp is, in the food chain, I suppose it's, a, it's an intermediate role. It's, it's an omnivore. It's quite low down compared to some of the other species of, uh, which are farmed. It's, um, it can graze off um, 
detritus and um, invertebrates that it finds on the seabed, and it can, um, you know, make make use of uh, plant material, and uh, it'll catch live prey as well, small inverts, invertebrates as well. So it's it's an omnivorous animal. Different species depend differently for um, uh, levels of uh, animal protein. So you have monodon, which is an, a major species for prawn for shrimp farming, is uh, is a bit more carnivorous than anamay, which is the other main species in farming. Now, so, how would those two be like on in the marketplace, in like uh, on the grocery store shelves and stuff? Like, how would those? What would those be called? Yeah, you'd be looking at white shrimp would be vanamay. Mm-hmm. Um, Western white leg prawn is the, is the usual name. Um, well, in the textbooks at least, but uh, on the on the on the shelf, it's a tropical shrimp. It's a it's a white shrimp. Whereas the monodon is is a tiger shrimp. You can often see the banding in the, in the shell, so it's got little yeah sort of tiger stripes. Mm-hmm. It's less pronounced when you've cooked it. Everything seems to go a nice uh, orange color when you cook, but um, mm-hmm. Before that, yeah, there are these differences in color when you look at the the live animal. Right. So those are the two main species that people eat, right? Of, of shrimp, primarily around the world. Of, of the farmed species, those are the dominant ones, yeah. What about wild-caught? Is there a really big market for wild-caught shrimp as well? I know that, like, I think what mostly what we eat is farmed, but obviously there's a lot of people eating yeah. a lot of shrimp around the world. So the, the, the taste for eating crustaceans was originally built up on the the basis of uh, wild-caught shrimp. So um, you think of the ones coming in from the Gulf in, uh, in the U.S., you've got the brown shrimp, pink shrimp, different, different ones coming in there. Uh, in Asia, there are significant fisheries for wild prawns as well. So the, the farmed form has come to dominate, especially in traded circles and especially in food service and uh, supermarket supplies. Mm-hmm. Because those markets, they need regular sizes, regular delivery, uh, consistent quality and grading. And that's what a farm can do. Whereas a wild fishery for prawns, it's seasonal. They come and go. They come early. They come late. Different sizes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is less suited to modern markets. And so the, all these different species, then, is it, do they, you find them in different parts of the ocean? Like, are they, there's some that are, you, you'll find in cold water versus warm water, or are they kind of all very similar? Because I know there's similar species, but you know there's a lot of different speciation between them. Indeed, yeah. And um, well, there's a, a major fishery as well for, for cold water shrimp or prawns, which are coming in from, for example, the, the North Atlantic. And um, they've got a, a significant market in, in uh, Europe. So if you look around, you'll find uh, yeah multiple species depending on which ocean you're in, whether you're in the warm waters or the, or the cold waters. The depth of the water will influence which species you're pulling up. Um, so it's it's quite um, quite a varied set of species that, that do come in to supply these markets. So Dan, for me, when I think of farm shrimp, I just picture shrimp being raised in a pond. When I think of the fisheries sector for shrimp, I'm having a harder time figuring out like how, what's the, what's like the fishing method that's most common for, for catching shrimp in the wild? The trawling, uh, because these are bottom dwelling 
you're going to mm-hmm. have to uh, pretty much drag a, a net along the seabed behind a, behind a boat, typically. I mean, some very small fisheries will use cast nets or mm-hmm. a few traps. But okay. it's primarily a question of, of, of dragging a net along the seabed. And that is one of the, uh, the downsides of trawling for prawns, is that you do catch a lot of bycatch. And mm-hmm. that, that could be, so you have to take care. You might be bringing up some turtles, a lot of juvenile fish. Um, so those um, trawl fisheries for prawns, then they need to be managed carefully so they don't uh, overdo yeah, it. I bet. And is that happening? Are they being managed well? Uh, from your I mean, perspective, uh, in, there's been a, a lot of improvement on turtle protection. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those fisheries are still quite uh, damaging in terms of um, the bycatch. They do bring in a lot of juvenile species and, and bottom-dwelling species. So I think in some spots uh, it's being overdone. So it's it's mm-hmm. a mixed picture. Um, some, some of those prawn fisheries are, are well-managed and they're certified as sustainably uh, run. So um, that includes some of the Gulf fisheries, that includes Australian prawn fisheries. Some of them are, are well-managed. Interesting. I've ne- I'm honest, like, I've never even really thought about it. We've We've done such a focus here since, like you said, we used to be the Aquaculture Alliance, Global, Global Aquaculture Alliance. Uh, so we've always had such a strong focus on the farm shrimp that that's kind of what I've always thought about. But now that we're in both sides, you know, we got to start thinking about that, uh, the wild caught too. And I've... Is there a difference between shrimp and prawn? I've heard that we use them interchangeably, but is there actually a different or are they one in the same? Yeah, it depends where you are. Now, if, if you're in the <laughs> States, it's typically a, uh, a shrimp is a marine animal and a prawn is a freshwater animal and that coincides with fao terminology they call the the freshwater prawns typically macrobrachium uh, and they call the the marine ones shrimp in the uk if it's small we call the shrimp if it's big we call the prawn Um, so we're not very consistent so globally the two terms aren't very useful Um, so you can use them interchangeably and uh and always make some excuse. Oh well, I'm using the Australian terminology or the you know, <laughs> yeah. Or the Must be always terminology. a reason. So you can always cover yourself. Um, but yeah, the two main ones we're concerned with when we think of shrimp and prawns are the freshwater species. Those are macrobrachium species, and the ones with, where they have big claws and um, quite big heads. And then there's the marine uh, shrimp, which are the panades. All the panaeas, that's your monodons, your panames, your indicus, and, and the other species. Must be a thing with crustaceans, because it was the same thing when we did crawfish, right? Mm. Like, oh yeah, you can call them crawfish, crayfish, crawdads, like <laughs> mud bugs. It's yeah, like all yeah, the different yeah. names. And yeah. A good memory. Spiny lobster, rock lobster. Yeah. Yeah. You call them what you like. And then uh, you're, you're somewhere in the world, you've got it right, you'll be correct. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, that kind of leads us into like talking about freshwater versus marine what are the production primary production methods for shrimp farming around the world? Yeah, and and it also that's going to also kind of coincide with the life stages, right? So we can kind of mix the biology mm. with this because mm-hmm. there's different life stages, very different life stages for shrimp that you have to address in different ways. So yeah, well, the uh, the shrimp is one of the reasons shrimp is makes such a good species to farm is that the uh, they are very fecund, one female. Um, uh, broodstock animal 
will produce a lot of uh, eggs and they will come around every seven to 10 days and produce more eggs. So what you do is you set, set up a hatchery with these broodstock animals um, and then you're getting your eggs and your larval shrimp coming through in big numbers uh, ready to take on possibly through a nursery phase, which is uh, using tanks or small ponds, and then on to the full on-growing or grow-out stage, which is where you have the big uh, surface areas and the big ponds. So your, your typical shrimp farm is earthen ponds, sometimes bare earth, uh, sometimes smaller, more intensive operators, and they use linings, maybe concrete lining or um, plastic lining to, uh, to, to help contain the water and give you a nice uh, smooth surface to work with. So, um, yeah, these systems, they are characterized sometimes as extensive, sometimes as intensive, sometimes as semi-intensive, but just in, depends on how much, how many shrimp you put per square meter. Can, can you, I just want to interrupt real quick. Can you define what that means for our listeners in case hmm. they're not sure, in, extensive and intensive? Yeah. So extensive would be typically larger ponds, shallowish. And you put in just a small amount of um, prawn shrimp per square meter. And then you rely heavily on the natural productivity of that body of water to feed those uh, shrimp. Um, intensive is when you have um, smaller ponds, deeper, often with um, uh, lined walls. And then you have um, high density of shrimp. You can go to to 100 or more shrimp per square meter. And then you're adding feed to that system. So you have to add feed to keep those shrimp happy and healthy. And you also have to work hard to keep that water quality good. So you might put in aerators. These are devices to add oxygen or air to the water to um, keep the, uh, you know, the water quality suitable for, for good growth. And then something between those two would be semi-intensive, where you... Um, you have a, a fed system, but uh, you spread it out a bit over a, a biggish pond area, possibly an earthen pond, simple embankments. So um, those are the, the main systems. And uh, these are coastal. They are in, usually in estuaries or along coastal strips. And um, you don't tend to get them in, uh, in cages. It's nearly always in ponds. I'm curious what you what your viewpoint is on the, um, the, the RAS systems for shrimp. We did a, um, innovation, innovation. Yeah. We did a seafood innovations episode on shrimp box, uh, which they had on display last year at Cena. And, uh, you know, we, it's basically a shipping container that's been converted into a RAS system to, to grow shrimp. Uh, and then I know there's also a couple other like bioflock and stuff like that. Some other methods. Uh, what's your, what's your opinion or your viewpoint on those? Because, you know, you just mentioned that most of this grow out is happening in coastal areas, but the the RAS and the bioflux stuff can be done almost anywhere. So I'm curious kind of what you what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, the 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 innovation and the the technology that goes into some of those RAS systems is 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 truly impressive. And as you say, once you've uh, developed those systems and you're recirculating your water, you're in a you can move that operation inland. You can Put it indoors, and then um, you can move it uh, to colder uh, regions. It doesn't have to be in a, a tropical region where these panaid shrimp usually live. 
So it opens up a lot of possibilities. What what you have on the downside is a big investment in uh, equipment, mm. uh, a considerable use of energy for treating your water, aerating, recirculating, filtering your water. Um, so it's it's not automatically a winner to intensify your system. So you have to be careful with your marketing. You have to find somebody who really values having a locally produced um, live product potentially on their doorstep and then you can make a you can make a go of it but um, when it comes to bulk commodities it's the it's the, the tropically farmed systems uh, the, the, the systems in the tropics which are where they use the the ambient temperatures and um, mm-hmm. the uh, you know the, the the marine or brackish water supplies locally to to run their crops those are the ones that predominate in terms of delivering crops um you know at a competitive price year round yeah i would assume just given the expense to run an res system you really have to you know you see a, a lot of high valued species being raised in them like salmon and bronzino and things like that that are going to get you that cover those costs to run that system i don't know if shrimp would would do that or not no you're right that, that's um can be um tied in cleverly with good marketing then those mm-hmm. systems yeah. are uh, are uh, can lead the way um they are clever in cutting the the localized uh environmental impacts they do have some um co2 uh impacts because of their higher energy input but um they are in terms of you know impacting the local environment using land uh they are well they're very efficient in that regard mm. so yeah and with ras systems you have so much more control yep over mm-hmm. over the water what happens in the water right and i want to actually talk about that in a minute because i, I want to talk about some diseases and, and water quality stuff but uh you mentioned you know the tropical locations where this has grown looking at the global shrimp production where is most of the shrimp being grown where is most of it coming from so uh asia because it's not the u.s <laughs> indeed no there, there have been periods of flourishing production in um in the u.s and um jeff peterson uh formerly with uh, gsa was uh, a shrimp farmer in uh, in southern u.s so um they're coming in from uh, latin america ecuador is the leader there and then when you go to asia you have india Thailand, Indonesia, China, um, Vietnam, those are the, the big producers uh, in terms of you know, the, the bulk quantities. So it's Asia. Are those, also, are those also the biggest consumers? Wait, where, where is most of that shrimp going? Is a lot of it staying local or is it being like in, Increasingly, huge? It's, it's going to uh, in expanding markets in Asia, uh, such as China and um, other expanding economies in, in Asia. But um, Japan and uh, the USA and the EU are, constitute the biggest markets for these internationally traded prawns. Local consumption is, is significant and growing. Um, as Asian populations increase, as Asian disposable, inco- disposable incomes increase, there's more and more of these uh, aquaculture products being consumed in, in Asia itself. And of course, China. Uh, because it's a big, big place with a, with a, well, the population is not growing anymore, but they're certainly getting uh, steadily richer 
and they're, they're spending more money on, on seafood. Yeah, I know I've been hearing a lot recently about India. I know a lot of stuff has been happening in India with a much higher percentage of the shrimp being eaten locally there. I, I, I know that I've been hearing a lot about that happening too. So. so we've talked about where the shrimp comes from and where it goes. How does it work? This is a, a complicated supply chain, right? And um, there's there's a lot going on. There's a lot of shrimp. This is we're talking massive amounts of metric tons being shipped all over the world all the time. What is I mean, how, what are like the ins and outs of this of this industry in regards to you know how how it's managed? I don't know if that's a very clear well, yeah, question. It's um it's it's quite a a big question. Um, yeah. I mean we can, can <laughs> we can imagine that uh, it's the tropical producer countries in in Latin America and Asia. Uh, that are producing these quantities, which are then uh, typically frozen and by containerized shipping transported to the major markets in the West and in Japan. So um, that's the major flow of these products is, is, is in terms of, sort of commodities. Um, and it's, uh, it's something which freezes well it's a product which uh, is very versatile in, in its sort of product forms in the u.s there's a big market for uh head off shrimp mm-hmm. in europe they like they often southern europe especially they like uh head-on shrimp um so you end up supplying or farming your prawns depending on the market you're interested in mm-hmm. uh, if you take one case in particular say madagascar they produce uh, tiger shrimp, that's monodon, and they produce um, large sizes aimed at the, the top end of the French market. And in France, they like them individually quick frozen. They like them with an intense coloration and a nice hard shell. And um, these farmers in major producers in Madagascar are targeting that market, and they, they develop these uh, strong linkages. So there are particular markets which demand particular things and then the farmer will adjust sizes adjust quantities to to supply those particular markets um you can always get a uh, a stock at high density get a bigger crop of smaller shrimp you can cut the density somewhat and get a get larger shrimp um so the farmer is is aiming to to come out with with the product that uh, is is being is in demand at that stage, and these prices will fluctuate through the year. And um, Baname tends to go for the smaller sizes, monodon, often some of the bigger sizes because monodon, as an animal, it is a, a bigger, faster growing. Uh, well, not necessarily faster growing, but it certainly is a bigger animal and larger sizes available with monodon farming. I mean, I could jump all over the place. We did talk about how we're managing, you know, the fisheries, but we're also highly managing and making sure that these ponds, these facilities that are raising shrimp are also doing it responsibly. And yeah. we've talked on this on the, sh- in the, on the podcast and other episodes about, you know, these mangrove fo- forests that were getting destroyed, put in these ponds. And that became like a big, I mean, a that, big that's issue. And that's basically why, why our company exists. Correct. And we've come such a long ways to managing these farms more Mm-hmm. responsibly and i just yeah i don't know if we want to talk no, you're about right. that i think all. that's uh that is a natural progression in our discussions is uh well these this industry has grown fast from um almost nothing 30 40 years ago 
um, and it has had some impacts. And um, as as you alluded uh, there, Sean, that has been one of the drivers behind the creation of of our alliance right here, the Global Seafood Alliance, was the need to uh, address some of these uh, concerns about habitat impacts mm-hmm. and um, antibiotic residues. So they were some of the major concerns uh, associated with farm trench. So, um, yeah, that, this was uh, an era. This was sort of the, the 1990s. There were um, instances of vast areas of mangroves being damaged by shrimp farm construction, um, just uh, with little consideration to habitat damage. And um, a lot of farmers were doing the right thing, but there were significant numbers who just uh, sort of had this sort of gold rush effect, and they were wading into these different coastal margins and just uh, you know damaging the mangroves. Mm. Meanwhile, some of the, the bigger, more responsible operators had realized that those mangrove areas are not really good for prawn farming, shrimp farming. They, uh, the soil isn't good. The water drainage isn't good. So you end up with a, a pretty feeble crop. So the successful farmers um, were farming inland from the mangroves in the, in the salt flat area. And those people were determined to distinguish themselves from some of the, the, the cowboy operators who were, were creating the bad impacts. And those people came forward and helped in the formation of uh, the Global Agriculture Alliance and in the development of the standards, which were and are very strict on this issue of uh, habitat protection and mangrove protection. That's awesome. That's We've talked about that in multiple episodes, like you said. So people can go back and listen to our conversations with George Chamberlain. And then um, we did an episode on on regenerative yep. aquaculture. So go check out those uh, if you're more interested in that story, because that is a, a fascinating kind of angle to to dive into. But I'm really interested in in the market. What you were talking about, kind of the different products uh, that's based on the species and 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 stuff. I find it fascinating that like different countries like their shrimp prepared in a different way, right? Some like shell on, some like shell off head, de-headed, all these different things. But I got a question for you, Dan. Why do they always have the tail on it whenever we get it here in America? Is that a preference? That drives me nuts. I just, I want nothing on my shrimp. <laughs> like, when I prepare shrimp, the first thing I do is I shell it and I take everything off, including the tail, right? Yep. And uh, when I get, like, shrimp scampi at a restaurant, it'll be, like, cooked in my meal with the, with the tail on, so I got to get my fingers dirty digging through my, my food trying to get those tails off. Why, why is that the preference? Do you have any, any answer for me? Help me out, Dan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, yeah, it's um, just what people are used to, what people uh, like. Okay, to, to go to one, one end of the spectrum, you will serve up um, whole prawns on a plate in a restaurant in France. They will, the shell will be on, the head will be on. They'll break off the tail from the head. Um, they will uh, suck the uh, contents of the, of the head out because it's full of all the, uh, the liver juices and um, it's delicious. Uh, and then they will proceed to, to peel the tail piece and, and eat the tail meat. So that's, some, that's where people really enjoy the whole, the whole mm-hmm. animal, effectively. And then you come across to, to markets where you have yeah, popcorn shrimp or where it's all peeled and deveined and uh, there's no shelling involved at all. Mm-hmm. And then um, 
yeah, something in between. Then you've got a, a shell-on-tailed prawn uh, or shrimp, excuse me. And these, um, it's they cook a little bit differently. They hold their juices. If, the, if that little bit of uh, shell is retained uh, right through the cooking process, then you've got a, a juicier mouthful. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's horses for courses. Uh, it, it is it's a fascinating product. And um, it I guess you can be breaded. It. It, <laughs> <laughs> it can be breaded. It can go in salads. It can be hot. It can be cold, cooked, uncooked. You can do a, a ceviche, which is a lovely way of doing it. That's where you mm. take the, the flesh and you, you, uh, you hardly cook it at all. In fact, the cooking is done by the lime juice that you, you put the, uh, the shrimp into. And those are peeled and, uh, and often deveined uh, before they go into the ceviche. So, yeah, whatever you like, you know, there, there is a way that the shrimp can be prepared to, to your taste. I remember when, we, when I was in China, we had uh, a plate of shrimp come out and, they, and, and I, they said, just eat it. Don't take the shell off. Just throw the whole thing in your mouth and chew it up. And I couldn't tell if they were trying to like mess with me or if that's how it really is eaten. And then I saw someone else do it. So then I felt okay. doing. <laughs> I had a restaurant in my town that served shrimp with the shell on and they seasoned it. And I gave him a look and the waiter who brought it over, I don't know if he was also the chef, it wasn't a very like big restaurant. And they just, they, he said, you eat the skin on the chicken, right? So this is no, and the seasoning they put on it was great. And I probably had two or three with with it that way and then i was like i can't do it and i did <laughs> feel it yeah i think the smaller sizes uh shell on is quite quite doable for the for the bigger ones yeah you're going to struggle and then as you work up through your crustaceans you're not going to mess around with with a lobster eating, <laughs> eating the shell on a lobster that yeah you break your teeth that's a good way to break um, your teeth. so but you can go right down there's a whole spectrum there right through to one end you got soft shell crab which is designed to uh to be eaten whole and you don't worry about peeling that because this, this doesn't have a hard shell on it yeah. at all. So um, there are plenty of variety there. And once you've got through that outer shell, there's no bones. So that's another appealing feature of yeah. uh, shrimp and other crustaceans is get yeah. through the exoskeleton and you've got a uh, just solid meat. Basically a wad of protein. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, exactly that. Well, I think you talked about the flexibility like the range of how you can prepare shrimp and correct me if i'm wrong sean if you know this or dan i believe shrimp is at least number one or number two as the consumed seafood choice in the united states um i think tuna is number one i actually that makes sense i know shrimp is is up there for me it's maybe the number one farmed species there's just so many there's there so many different ways and I've talked about it personally on on the show just that I that's my go-to because of how simple it is and there's so many creative quick meals that you can make with, with shrimp. And actually that was an, another question I had. I don't know I don't know if uh Dan you can answer this or not, but we we talk a lot about the dietary guidelines for how much seafood you should eat in a week. And I was curious about the nutritional value of shrimp compared to say salmon right like when everyone talks about salmon it's it's you know it's so high in omega-3 fatty acids which are the good fatty acids that your body needs um i I don't know what the talking points are for pro shrimp yeah i was always told don't eat too much shrimp you get sick like you you my mom was always like you got to be careful you don't want to have too much or it'll make you it'll make you feel sick and i always felt like it's very fatty but i i that's yeah i've never thought about that either what 
Well, yeah. it's, it's, it's funny. Um, at one point, shrimp did have a reputation as being high in cholesterol. So that was considered to be a down. Maybe that's why, yeah. A down uh, side of eating it. In fact, the, the, the <laughs> fat con- concentration is very low in, in shrimp. Uh, so it's actually a, a low fat, high protein diet with lots of, um, lots of micronutrients in there. So it's, uh, it doesn't pack that same level of uh, long chain omega-3s that you get in, uh, in salmon or, uh-huh. or oily fish, but it, it's, uh, it is very healthful because it's so many other um, nutritional things in there. You, got, you get your vitamin D and your selenium and, um, yeah, a pl- plenty of uh, good nutrition in there. That's good because I eat a lot of shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the other thing. Like we eat a lot of it because it's, it's more affordable than a lot of other species too, right? Very true. Why, why is it so much more affordable, Dan? Is it just because it's so much easier to farm than some of the other species and you can get such larger quantities? Well, you, you touched on this earlier when you were started asking about food chain. It, uh, it's not that high up the food chain. So it's not um, uh, a massively carnivorous species. So you can feed it on a diet, which is um, not, not a very high protein level. So a typical Vaname diet will have around 20% or 20, 25% protein. So um, the, uh, the, they are um, adaptable in their diet somewhat. You can give them um, different byproducts and uh, terrestrial ingredients, particularly soya in the diet, and they thrive on that as well. Mm. Yeah, some fish meal always uh, helps a lot with, with a good quality diet. but. Um, so they're, I guess they're affordable because they become a, a mass commodity and um, because uh, they're, they can be produced uh, in controlled quantities. And, um, yeah, they have a good meat yield. Um, these, these, uh, you know, the tail is a good 60% plus of the total weight of the, uh, mm-hmm. of the, of the shrimp if you include the weight of the, the exoskeleton. So um, there's plenty of meat there. Um, and, yeah, it's... Uh, I guess it's affordable because it's become uh, the farming technology has, has just improved steadily. And whereas if you're fishing them from the sea, you are expending quite a amount of uh, fuel with your trawling mm-hmm. vessel. And um, that means, you know, these, these prawns aren't coming in or these shrimp aren't coming in very cheaply. But on a farm, as you improve your technology for feed management, improve your technology for uh, stocking, you do selective breeding, you improve your disease management, you uh, just refine your systems, then you can um, control your costs and and get your production uh, and your efficiencies improved over time, and that drives down costs. Can we talk a little bit about disease? Yeah, that's where I was going next. You beat me to it. (laughs) I, I know that there has been regional like outbreaks in the past, like white spot disease. I don't know if I'm getting that right, but there are certain diseases that have really hindered regions. Mm-hmm. Um, and antibiotic use is roped into that. That's also yeah. a big hot button issue too. So I think, yeah, maybe we can touch base or talk yeah. a little bit about uh, some of the issues. And challenges. What are the issues? Are they, are they still an issue? Have we, have we eradicated some of these things that have really hindered like the yield of shrimp in certain regions? No, you're, you're right. We, we can't talk about shrimp farming without talking about disease because it's been one of the major hurdles. And um, what happens often is a country has a, a few good years and then 
the shrimp farming expands, the stocking densities increase, and then uh, a disease event arrives and that spreads yeah. through the whole industry and the national output collapses. And then uh, shrimp farmers move to other countries and try and set up elsewhere. Uh, meanwhile, in the country that's been affected by disease, they have to clean up, develop disease-resistant strains or disease or develop disease-free strains. They have to mm -hmm. improve the biosecurity. They have to uh, get everything up and running again. Uh, and then these different countries will, will, will suffer these waves of, of uh, disease, in particular viruses. And you mentioned white spot. That's uh, white spot syndrome virus. And um, that's one I know only too well because I was running a monodon farm in Indonesia and uh, we got white spot virus and it was just so pervasive it closed down the whole farm and oh, they, they wow. couldn't restart production with monodon so eventually they had to switch species altogether to vaname to try and get a decent crop out so by that by that stage uh my contract had come to an end and i was just uh i, I couldn't i couldn't get any production out of the ponds because of the white spot virus so they uh, that was uh you know this been very much a part of, of what I've done in the industry is, is sort of trying to combat some of these diseases. But often it's just something so big that an individual farm can't fix it. You need to set up all these disease-free uh, broodstock operations, then these develop these disease-resistant and disease-free lines of shrimp. Yeah. And then um, that is, uh, that's been one of the big progress areas such that you can get these crops out. And some countries, they develop resistant strains because they know very well that the virus is still prevalent in the environment. In some countries, they go for uh, disease-free strains and they try to eliminate um, the, the virus entirely from their systems. And then you struggle on and then, some, then another virus or another bacterial issue will crop up. So it does seem to be, uh, you know, a bit of a boom and bust at times. Some people are getting a handle on it, but uh, booms and busts have been quite common. Does it seem to be going in the right direction? Does it feel like we're making progress with it? Yes, uh, we are making progress. Shrimp, shrimp production uh, is, is inching up every year. Um, countries like Ecuador have been up and down in their production because of different disease outbreaks, and Ecuador now is... Um, develop techniques to to uh, work with disease resistant strains and they are um, making steady progress so um it can be done and um, some countries are doing better than others uh, but yeah i think broadly it, it is a, a an encouraging picture because improvements in disease detection understanding of disease and biosecurity uh, and you know disease and breeding of these uh, disease resistant and disease free species is improving so that um, everybody can get a reliable crop out uh, or for the most part. Yeah. And what about antibiotic use? Is that still as much of an issue as it was a few years ago? It's, uh, it's a, a consistent worry. It's not um, a typical characteristic of, of prawn farming, certainly the ongoing phases. Uh, these days, um, they do have antibiotic usage in some hatcheries, and sometimes there are residues which carry through to the uh, farms. But the farms themselves, 
have weaned themselves off antibiotics oh, because yeah. um, it is very expensive and ineffective to to use antibiotics at, at that uh, big level. So um, the uh, um, and what's more now the, the technology for detecting antibiotics is so much better that um, farmers uh, who might uh, be tempted to use antibiotics, uh, they're going to be found out very quickly because the yeah. processing plants will be screening for antibiotics. And um, because it's, it's, a, it's a food safety issue and uh, the marketplace is very sensitive to, to issues about antibiotics. Um, so sometimes uh, you can uh, detect residues of antibiotics in in shrimp or in seafood, and that's sometimes just very low level of um, uh, environmental or amb- ambient levels of, of some of these uh, these um, antibiotics. It's not because there's been uh, abuse of the ant- of the antibiotics at the farm level. So. Um, uh, antibiotics is, is an issue, but we are, you know, it, they can be detected, and uh, it's just not the concern it was um, twenty or thirty years ago. That's great, and that makes me wonder what your this is just your personal opinion. What do you see as the future outlook for the shrimp sector in the next ten years? Like, what do you see as the challenges, but also what do you see as opportunities for the sector? So. Um, I see people getting even more skilled at uh, managing these uh, aquaculture systems. You do have um, um, applying technology in uh, the hatcheries, in the breeding, in the feeding, in the pond management, in the water management, um, use of remote sensing, disease diagnosis, uh, handheld apps, water quality kit. All these little tweaks in um, the apparatus and the technology, you get these little marginal gains. And uh, maybe individually they don't amount to much, but if people adopt them, people start to spot diseases earlier, they start to identify what's causing these diseases, they start to um, develop better stocking lines to combat diseases, then you sort of Incrementally, you can make progress. So, I don't see anything massively revolutionary in the future. I just see these uh, incremental gains, and um, the shrimp industry continuing to expand. It is an because the the animal is quite low down the food chain, so middling in the food chain. It's especially vaname. It's it's quite a good converter of feed, and um, it, it it's got a quite a, a diverse diet in terms of what you can put into a compound diet that, that will keep these animals happy and healthy. So um, I'm, I'm very optimistic for shrimp farming. And yes. um, I know that people say, oh, we have to eat insects because insects are very abundant. And, um, but, you know, I think the arthropod we should be looking at is, is the shrimp. If we want to eat um, that, that kind of animal, let's go for the marine version. 
let's go for the crustaceans. Let's go for the. Sh- I would agree with that. Yeah. I, I'd, <laughs> <laughs> um, real quick, Dan, we're getting we're starting to run out of time a little bit, but real quick, if any of our listeners are interested in getting involved with shrimp production, what do you think would be a good place for them to start? I think um, people I know who've got involved have who've uh, had interest in biology, and then they've taken that into um, aquaculture, and um, it's aquaculture is some biology it's some water chemistry it's um understanding a bit of uh disease issues and and biosecurity uh some of the people i know who got involved in aquaculture have been specialists in producing live feeds which go to feed the animals in hatcheries so hatcheries are always an interesting sector because they need skilled technicians and skilled biologists so i think that is a is a, an area where there are interesting jobs to be had. Um, if you wanted to uh, fill a, a, a big need, we do need more aquaculture vets. So if you wanted to go to vet school and specialize in in fish or crustaceans, then there would be a job waiting for you at the end of your your studies. Um, if you want to get involved. Uh, and the production level, um, then you can operate on a small scale. You can you, technology for producing shrimps is is um, well as long as you can get a supply of the seed. That's the the, the post larval, the early stage animals. Then you can grow these things um, in indoor systems, which are uh, can be on a quite small scale. So, but that's more sounds a bit more a bit more like a hobby than a than a real career. Um, I always used to go to aquaculture conferences and there are people there who actually specialize in finding jobs for new graduates or, or keen young people in particular who want to get on the, into the aquaculture business. So yeah, conferences, yeah, chase up, chase up, get some knowledge, develop some enthusiasm and uh, be ready to travel, I guess. So. As our resident shrimp slash crustacean farming expert, you literally wrote the book on it. Yeah, that's also another good place to start, by the way. If you want to learn about shrimp, get the book. (laughs) Very true. We need to know and the people need to know what is Dan Lee's favorite shrimp dish? Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Shrimp ceviche, uh, which is uh, the shrimp. And they go into this uh, marinade, which is largely lime juice. And it's a, a, a dish which is common in, you get it in Mexico, you'll get it in Panama, you'll get it in Ecuador, you'll get it in Chile, well, not Peru rather than Chile. And it's a, um, everybody has a slightly different recipe and they always swear on my, my ceviche is the best or the Chilean or the Peruvian ceviche is the best or the Ecuadorian <laughs> ceviche is the best, but they're all good. And um, I think that is a, a delightful way to enjoy raw shrimp. Well, I don't know if you were like me, Dan, but when we were in Ecuador a few years ago for the, our what was called the Goal Conference back then, uh, I had ceviche for breakfast, lunch, and <laughs> dinner, and I never got sick of it, and it was it was very good. So I don't I don't know if you were doing the same thing that I was, but I, I was sure having was. that for like every meal of I, the day. I didn't go to Ecuador, but I did did get ceviche in Peru when I was there. So good. Yeah, good I think we all agree with you, Dan. Good call. I think we're we're onto something. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, is there anything else that you want to uh, 
get out for our listeners while you have this platform? I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground here. So, uh, yeah. yeah, no, no, I think we've, we've covered it pretty much as a, as a, as a um, we've laid out some of the issues, some of the production systems, the animals, how you eat them, how you market them. It's a, it's a big field. It's a fascinating field. It certainly was a shrimp-tastic episode. We really appreciate you coming on, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if anybody wants to get in contact with you, what is the best way to do that? D-A-N dot L-E-E at globalseafood.org. Globalseafood.org. Yeah. We'll link to it in the show notes. We'll in, your... in which case, yeah. <laughs> if anybody wants to, if you're having trouble contacting Dan, reach out to us and we'll get you in contact yeah. with him. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dan, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you. Folks, that was our conversation with Dan Lee. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something about shrimp. And I hope that you will come visit us at booth 481 at Cena this weekend if you are there. I want to remind everybody to make sure that you are subscribed to Aquademia wherever you listen. So every time a new episode comes out, it'll automatically be downloaded on your device. Follow us on Twitter at AquademiaPod. If you want to contact podcasts for any reason, you can do so on our online forum, which is located at globalseafood.org slash podcast. And if you liked this episode and you want to let us know, then leave us a rating or review on whichever podcast platform you're on. That's right. And if you like what we do at Global Seafood Alliance and you want to be a part of it and maybe be a little more involved, you may want to consider becoming a member. All the information about our membership program can be found at globalseafood.org slash membership. Thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you next time. Ciao. Bye. Thank you.